1: Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about 38-year-old Emily Bell BK, a smart, calm and independent lady who felt her last chance of wedding bells and babies had slipped by but having met an Irish rogue called Pat, although she was deeply in love with a married man, this tawdry affair would lead to her death. Murder research is used in the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details, and as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there my name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile. Episode 74, The Fatal Fling of Emily Bell BK, Part 1, The Affair. Today, I'm standing on Guildford Street in Bloomsbury, WC1. One street south of the Tavistock Square bus bombing, two streets east of the abominable Mr. and Mrs. Cox, a few doors down from the peaceful sleep of Vera Crawford in the Grenville Hotel, and one street west of the misreported killing of Darlene Horton, coming soon to Murder Mile. Guilford Street is an ugly little side street just off Russell Square, which being crammed full of unsightly student halls, aging hospitals, and long lines of previously ramshackle but now smartly renovated five-storey Victorian townhouses, many of which have been converted into hotels, B&Bs and hostels, with no bars, cafes or museums. This street is an insult to your eyeballs, your backside and your cakehole. In fact, the only sound that you'll hear is the endless thrum of suitcase wheels, noisily scraping and scuffing along the potholed street, as with tourists having packed for the rather pitiful three-day British summer, with most women carting about a canvas cargo container of everything they've ever owned, and most men having packed just a single pair of underpants. What they've forgotten are the essentials. Not shorts, sunglasses and sandals, but Rainmax, rat poison, and if they've arrived any time after Brexit, tin foods, candles, and bottled water. I have a thing where I make models of buses. 68 Guildford Street is currently a series of stylish apartments in a slim five-story terraced house with a standard white stucco on the ground floor, brown brick above, wrought iron railings and a single black entrance door. But back in the 1920s this was the Green Cross Club, a bachelor house which provided safe, comfortable and elegant accommodation for independent and career-minded single ladies, who weren't rich, but having worked hard, they could afford to live well. One of those residents was a delightful, if slightly lonely lady called Emily Bell And here, she was happy. And yet, having got engaged, packed her bags, and was ready to elope with the man of her dreams. On Monday the 7th of April 1924, Emily walked out of the Green Cross Club and never returned. For 14 years, Jessie Mahone had been the long-suffering wife of Pat, a handsome Irish charmer with chiselled good looks, a roguish cheek and the gift of the gab. Pat wasn't a good husband, as having a cheque had passed, he struggled to hold down a job. Being bad with money, he was too broke to pay any bills. And with a long history of betting on horses and cheating on his wife, having stood by him for the sake of their only child, the family was reliant on Jessie. Only with Pat, having been distant over the last few months and absent for most of the last few weeks, once again, Jesse had suspected that he had gone back to his old ways of gambling, and he was having an affair. Having returned on the evening of Monday the 28th of April to their home at 2 Pagoda Avenue in the affluent suburb of Kew, with his brown suit crumpled and his Gladstone bag missing, as Pat kissed his wife and child as if nothing had happened, Jesse could see from his oddly quiet demeanour that he harboured a guilty secret and as a Christian, his soul was being punished, having broken one of God's deadly sins. Suspecting him of seeing another woman, Jesse's worst fears were confirmed. When hidden in his suit pocket, she found a letter confirming he had leased an undisclosed bungalow from the 11th of April until the 8th of June, and a cloakroom ticket issued at the left luggage kiosk at Waterloo Station. with a potential divorce looming against her philandering husband and needing ironclad proof of his infidelity, Jessie wisely asked John Beard, a friend and a former divisional detective inspector of the Met who was now working for the British Transport Police to investigate her husband's tawdry affair. At the left luggage kiosk at the south side of Waterloo station, accompanied by two railway officials, John Beard handed the attendant ticket number J2415. From a sea of coats, hats and cases, he was given a brown Gladstone bag, owned by Pat. Made of hardened ox leather, missing a key, and with the clasp lock firmly shut, the case could not be opened. But by carefully prying a side flap apart, John peeped inside, and saw further proof of Pat's adultery. A pair of women's bloomers. But who was this woman that Pat was having an affair with? As many names as Jessie would have hurled at her husband's lover, in truth, she wasn't a gold digger, a harlot or a wrecker. She was just a lonely spinster, struggling to retain her last chance at love. Born on the 26th of November 1885, Emily Bailby Kay was the youngest of five children to Charles and Emma Kay, a prosperous shipping merchant and a hard-working housewife. With two older brothers, Elijah and Charles, two older sisters, Gertrude and Elizabeth, the family was educated, decent, and moral. Even though she was taller than most girls, with broad shoulders, an athletic frame and a distinctive look of bobbed brown hair, grey-blue eyes, and a parrot-like nose. Being calm, quiet, and bookish, Emily was undeniably clever, but painfully shy. As one of the nicest girls you could ever hope to meet, Emily was always smartly dressed, sweet-natured and polite. She never had a bad bone in her body, a curse word on her lips, or a hurtful thought in her head. And being so prepared and placid, her unflappable attitude would guide her through the endless tragedies which would befall her life. Age 17, her parents died in an accident. And with both of her brothers, Edward and Charles, and her eldest sister Gertrude dying a few years later, living with one remaining sister, Elizabeth, Emily supported herself for more than 20 years having wisely invested her £600 inheritance in shares, spent frugally and earned a decent living as a professional secretary. But by 1922, with her sister Elizabeth, now a married mum, living in Manchester, 36-year-old Emily moved to London. Eager to live somewhere safe for a single lady, near to her work and not too far from her bowls club, Being financially astute, Emily moved into the Green Cross Club at 68 Guildford Street. And in a small but stylish flat, which she shared with her close pal Edith Mary Warren, who she nicknamed Fizz, with Emily affectionately nicknamed Peter, the two ladies were inseparable. With tragedy behind her, by being both calm and clever, Emily blossomed into a self-sufficient woman, with a good job, a nice life, solid savings, and no worries. But with her 40th birthday slowly looming, most of her pals married off, and being cruelly seen by society as a spinster, she felt that her last chance of love had slipped away. And then she met the man of her dreams. In May 1923, whilst working as a secretary at an accountants called Robertson Hill & Co. in Moorgate, Consoles Automatic Aerators Limited, a factory which made soda fountains, went into liquidation. With Robertson Hill & Co. appointed as the receiver, Emily regularly spoke on the phone with the company's sales manager, and a friendship of sorts was formed. But it wasn't until the July that they would meet. When Pat walked in, Emily was instantly smitten. As a striking six-footer with deep chestnut eyes, soft wavy brown hair and a cheeky roguish grin, who lifted the mood of any room like a ray of Irish sunshine, Pat had the looks and Emily fell for his charm. Having been a single lady for a good long while, unused to doing the wooing and feeling her forties charging forth, Emily was a little rusty at courtship. That aside, any passionate plans would be scuppered as Pat was still married. But having been reassured that his and his wife's relationship was as good as done and an amicable divorce was close to imminent, happy that no one would be hurt, Emily pursued her man and her hopes for a lasting love. By September... After a delightful day by the river, their first intimacy took place. Emily was deeply in love, and as her heart pounded, so did the pace of their relationship as talk turned to marriage. So awaiting his divorce, the usually frugal Emily sold her shares in Dunlop and the Mayo Brewery and withdrew £400, almost £25,000 today, as Emily and Pat planned to begin a new exciting life together in South Africa via Paris. On the 27th of April 1924, as Emily recuperated from the flu at the Southwestern Hotel in Southampton, Pat popped into a high street jewellers and purchased a 14-karat gold ring with a large sapphire surrounded by diamonds. That night, over champagne, With the stars twinkling bright and having got down on bended knee, Pat proposed and Emily's dream came true. On the 1st of April, a beaming Emily returned to London as having set a date for the big day, her future looked rosy. In her room, she wrote letters to her close friends and one remaining sister informing them of the great news and with no need to live in such a solitary space for old maids and unloved spinsters. With love in the air, Emily packed. On the morning of Monday, the 7th of April, 1924, having held a taxi and carting a tennis racket, a hat box and a large brown trunk, all wisely etched with her initials of EBK, Emily exited the black front door and left the Green Cross Club Forever. In the left luggage kiosk of the south side of Waterloo station, John Beard stared at the Gladstone bag, its class block firmly shut. But having peeped inside and seen further proof of Pat's adultery, a pair of women's bloomers, the question wasn't just who was this woman, but where was she now? Although adultery wasn't a criminal offence, as an officer of the British Transport Police, John had the authority to open any bag he deemed suspicious, and using a small penknife, he easily picked the lock. Inside, the hard leather case was unusually messy, as having been packed fast and stashed here so its contents would be hidden from his long-suffering and rightfully dubious wife. Not only did the bag contain irrefutable evidence of her husband's infidelity, but also the dire consequences of conducting an adulterous affair. As finding a pair of ladies' bloomers, a torn silk nightdress, a white bath towel, all of which were bloodstained, and a sharp knife, often being performed in secluded and unsanitary conditions, a backstreet abortion was illegal. And for many women, it was fatal. So fearing a crime had been committed, John Beard contacted Superintendent Wellesley of Scotland Yard. Emily's drab little life as a lonely spinster was finally over and her new exciting life as a wife was about to begin. Having travelled by train from Waterloo, to the coastal town of Eastbourne, as agreed, she booked herself into the Kenilworth Court Hotel to await her lover and to recover from the flu. Oddly, being so athletic, she was usually strong as an ox and fighting fit, But after three weeks of nausea, insomnia and vomiting, with her sickness confined to the mornings, and her lady’s curse unusually late this month and last. this wasn’t the flu but something more joyful. As Emily recuperated, Pat rented a romantic little bungalow called The Officer's House in Pevensey Bay. A sweet, whitewashed cottage in a row of former homes for the local Coast Guard, which overlooked the sea between Eastbourne and Becks Hill. As a love nest, it was perfect. A set on a coastal walk, the lovers could stroll along the shingle beach as the rolling waves splashed about their feet, far from the prying eyes and wagging tongues of those who disapproved. But still being quite a cautious lady, with the cottage rented from the 11th of April to the 8th of June, this gave Pat and Emily time to live as husband and wife before they eloped overseas. So with the quaint little bungalow, stocked full of everything the couple would ever need, a master bedroom, three guest bedrooms and two sitting rooms featuring a cosy coal fire, a box room to store her large trunk and other such luggage, a kitchen with every conceivable utensil and a scullery chocked full of logs, kindling and, if needed, an axe. Being woozy with dreams of romantic nights, cuddled up with her lover beside a roaring fire. The fee was paid in advance and Pat pocketed a letter Confirming the lease on Saturday, the eleventh of April, Emily checked out of the Kenilworth Court Hotel. She politely asked if any mail for her could be redirected to Paris, their first stop before South Africa. Having met Pat off the train at the slightly later time of four forty-nine p.m., they made their way to the officer's house in Pevensey Bay. On the afternoon of the thirteenth the loving couple were seen walking arm-in-arm along the shingle beach. On midday of the 14th, Emily posted a letter to her pal, which was stamped with a date, a time and a place. And on the morning of Tuesday the 15th of April, a butcher delivering meat to a cottage adjoining their own saw Emily heading out to the shops. And being a polite lady, she smiled and waved that was the last time that she was seen alive. Having given Miss Warren a forwarding address of courtesy of the Standard Bank in Cape Town, South Africa, as a sweet-natured woman whose thoughts were always of others and rarely about herself, the last letter she ever wrote was to arrange to see her beloved friend again. Dear Fizz, Very many thanks for sending on the parcel. Apparently you're up in town this weekend. I wonder if Fred is with you. Pat arrived and we're having a very nice time. Quiet, but a nice change from town. He particularly wants to get us to Paris for Easter and I would love you and Fred to come and have dinner with us before we set out on our final journey. I shall look forward to seeing you then. We are returning from here on Wednesday and going straight to Paris. Ah, gay old Paris. Love to all my pals at the club, and lots to yourself, old thing. Yours ever, Peter. But by the time Fizz received it, Emily was dead. At the left luggage kiosk in Waterloo Station, John Beard showed Superintendent Wellesley the ripped and bloodied rags stashed inside the Gladstone bag a bath towel, a nightdress and a pair of bloomers. Still uncertain whether adultery or an illegal abortion had taken place. With no proof that a crime had been committed, the contents of the bag were purely circumstantial. The clothes could merely be rags used to mop up a spill or to wrap up a butcher's blade. Being ten inches long, the cook's knife was too unwieldy for an abortion as the thick serrated blade was better at carving up meat. Therefore the blood could just as easily have come from an animal in an abattoir. And with the initials EBK matching no one who'd been reported missing, the evidence pointed to a possible affair, but nothing more. And yet, with the blood's origin undetermined, and the base of the Gladstone bag oozing with a strange yellowy-brown layer of grease, Chief Inspector Guy Savage requested the assistance of the divisional surgeon Aubrey Scott Gillet. As if the blood was human and the grease was what the police thought it was, they knew that whoever EBK was, something very bad had happened to her. The night of Tuesday the 15th of April 1924 was nasty as a violent storm ripped through the heart of Pevensey Bay and a biting rain lashed down the whitewashed walls of the bungalow. So dark was the night that as a thick soupy fog suffocated the moonlight and a bitter wind howled so loud like a pack of hungry wolves tearing at a fleshy carcass, that from inside their love nest nothing could be seen or heard. Illuminated by candles, a coal fire and gas lights. Although Pat had stocked the cast iron cauldron full of coal and spent a short while chopping logs into little lumps, all with a pointlessly small axe, the roast dinner was a disaster, thanks to the kitchen's old pots, cracked crockery and blunt knives. And as a storm raged, The weather outside matched the mood inside. As not only was Pat still married, not only was Pat still not divorced, but being just days away from leaving for Paris, Pat still didn't have a passport. At around 10.30pm, although we can never be certain, as Emily stood in the sitting room, dressed in slippers, bloomers and a silk nightdress, the question of Pat's commitment arose as her last chance at love slowly began slipping away. In a later statement, Pat would say, She fumed and raged. Suddenly, in a fit of anger, she picked up a coal axe and threw it at me. It glanced off my shoulder and hit the bedroom door, breaking the shaft. When investigated, the police would find a small hand axe, its handle split. I felt appalled at the fury she had showed me and realised suddenly how strong she was. She dashed at me and clutched at my face and neck. Talking to those who knew her, it was clear that as a tall, broad-shouldered woman and a keen tennis player, she was powerfully built and knew how to handle herself. I did my best to fight back. We struggled, fell over an easy chair and Miss Kay's head came into violent contact With a round cold cauldron. And as expected. By the side of the sitting room fireplace. The police would find a cast iron cauldron. With one of its legs bent. She lay stunned or dead. The next few seconds I can't remember. Except as a nightmare of horror. For I saw blood begin to issue from Miss Kay's head. I did my utmost best to revive her. But by then. It was too late, as Emily Bailby-Kay was dead. Pat's statements continued. The struggle reduced me to exhaustion, and as the terrible position I was in flooded my brain, I I, I can't remember, but I I think I gently placed the body of Miss Kay into the trunk. In the box room, the police would find a large brown trunk, bloodstained, and initialed with the letters EBK. I came up to London on the 17th of April and purchased a knife and a small saw. At the Staines Kitchen Equipment Company at 94 Victoria Street a salesman sold Pat a 10-inch cook's knife and a butcher's meat saw as in the cottage's kitchen the largest knives were too blunt to be of any use. petrified of this dreadful accident being uncovered. I severed the legs from the hips, cut off the head and the arms, which I burnt in the fire. I boiled some of the flesh in a pot. The smell was appalling, so I cut up the portions small, packed them in a brown Gladstone bag, and I tossed them out of the train between Waterloo and Richmond. All of which was corroborated by a stack of stained pots, a foul smell, and ash in the fire's pan. But sadly, no flesh was ever found by the sniffer dogs. Having stashed the Gladstone bag in the left luggage kiosk at Waterloo Station as I was returning to the bungalow to get some more flesh to be disposed of, on the evening of Monday the 28th of April 1924, Pat returned home, hung up his suit which reeked of the stench of a boiled body and as if nothing had happened, he kissed his wife and child. The death of Emily Bale Biquet was effectively an open and shut case, a tragic accident backed up by facts and a statement by her lover. If found guilty of manslaughter, Pat would serve a few years in prison, but with no other witnesses and very little evidence to suggest foul play. Pat would most likely serve the lesser charge of denying a proper burial, for which he would serve just a few weeks. On Friday the 1st of May 1924, 17 days after she was last seen alive, Police Divisional Surgeon Aubrey Scott Gillet confirmed that the bloodstains and the yellowy-brown grease were human. Having identified the victim, By linking the EBK initials on her canvas satchel to her tennis club, the police knew who she was, but with no departures to Paris or South Africa in her name, and no letters or sightings after the 15th of April, which was highly unusual for such a social and thoughtful lady. The police suspected that something bad had happened to Emily, but they had no idea what, or even where she was. The police were certain of one thing. This was not an accident or an abortion. This was murder. But how do you prove a murder took place when an accident is the most logical answer? How do you prove a murder when the victim is missing? How do you disprove a murderer's alibi when his statement is factually accurate but clearly a tissue of lies? And how do you prove? that a murder was premeditated and committed in cold blood when every essential piece of evidence has either been boiled, burned or destroyed and the body of the victim herself will never be found. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. The concluding part of the fatal fling of Emily Bail BK continues next week. For all of Mickey's Bakewell tart chomping beauties, there's more tea-rific treats and cakey goodness after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week.
0: We are Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Erin Pline and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system or shark's digestive systems or how many priests are necessary for an exorcism or the guillotine or how much milk can fit in a shopping cart or how to cook dicks or or what it means when your nose itches or penguins or why it's called Scotland Yard or proper body disposal or (laughs) sentencing or how to make it through an entire episode without saying God. How big does a rock have to be to be a boulder? Or geography. Or whether stingrays have teeth. Or crime in Minnesota. Or how medical parole works. Or why people text their crimes to each other. Or the hierarchy of cops. Or what a paper grabber is. Anything about an Alfred plea. The security at Buckingham Palace. If warrants expire. How to start a fire. How much drugs cost. If ducks would make good guard animals. Whether priests have to tell the police about crimes they're aware of and maybe even involved in. Pink stun guns. How much is eleven pounds of cocaine work? The mechanics of hanging. What happened to Carla Homolka after her release? How to make a car fly. The colonial parkway killer. swans migrate? The marital property laws in Florida. If horses can throw up. Do hibernate? What animals can get drunk? How do you get stuck in a window? Live? International flight security. How do you typewriter into your prison cell? What you shouldn't bring to a robbery. But. We're still crazy for a good true crime story. If you don't know anything about these things either, you should come listen to Crime Crazy. Diana, do you have any advice for us? Yeah, you should subscribe to Crime Crazy. You can find us on iTunes or Google Play or Podbean or your podcast catcher of choice. You can follow us on Facebook. Twitter. Instagram. WordPress. Facebook. Gmail. Or Facebook. Call your people. Yes, call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode. Hi, I'm Caprice, and I'm the host of the Unseen podcast. We look at missing person cases, unresolved crimes, and lesser-known stories from around the UK. We delve into cases that do not gain public attention, such as unidentified people and historic cold cases. If you're interested in true crime from the UK, then you might be interested in having a listen to The Unseen. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Wendy Evans, Russell Tudge and Cara Langford. I thank you with an extra thank you to those patrons who have increased their pledge to get extra goodies like early and ad-free episodes of Murdermile. Ooh, I thank you. Plus special thank yous to Amanda King for your kind donation via PayPal, Dawn Smith for the very kind donations sent via the donate button at the Murdermile merch shop, and Dan Huxley who came on a Murdermile walk armed with cake. I am a very lucky boy, so I thank you all. Murder was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. oh dear that was good 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 okay yeah no break straight in and we're done ready good hey everyone welcome to uh extra mile hello it's michael how are you you're all good you're good i can hear you saying hello back Yep, say hello back even if you're even if uh, if you're walking by yourself it's fine you're by yourself you can say hello michael say hello michael now hello michael if you're on a bus, say hello, Michael. Don't worry if there's people around you. They won't mind. Just say, hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. In fact, shout it out loud. Say, hello, hello, Michael. And then look around and wave at everyone while you're doing it. That won't look weird at all. Uh, so, welcome, everyone. This is Extra Mile. Oh, stretch. Extra Mile. Uh, the unscripted, unedited, blah bloody blah part of the show where I will tell you extra things that... Probably didn't go into the episode. Obviously, as mentioned before, this is kind of the um, I record this immediately after I've recorded the uh, the narration for the bit that you've just listened to. So even so, you've just listened to uh, the full edited stuff, which I won't finish for like another two days. So currently, I don't know what's going to go, what's staying in that bit, what isn't, because you know, I write uh, and then I edit as I write. And then I, I finish the script and go, yep yeah, okay, that's about right. and Then we record it. And then it's only when I start editing it that I start thinking, do you know, I should, actually, we've kind of already covered this bit. Sometimes there's bits and pieces in there where you, you think, you think oh, I've kind of already explained that somewhere else. I've put it in a kind of some words there or that paragraph covers that. So sometimes it gets cut out or sometimes... Sometimes, like, you'll find that, like, even in this story, the character of John Beard, I kind of ummed and over whether to keep John Beard in, because he's not really that useful to the plot. Um, because a lot of this, some of it she could, a lot of this she could have done herself, but, um... Uh, it kind of made sense. John had a, uh, the kind of authority. He was kind of the reason why he, he could open up the bag because he worked for the British Transport Police and he was an ex policeman and he knew all the police. So I kind of kept him in. But I did, uh, at the start, I was like, mm. I was umming and ahhing about whether, do, do you know, even even though it's, it's true for the story, is it right to, you know, add in these extra. I always find that if you add extra names in, like at the start of the story originally, um, I put in there about the fact that uh, the uh, they had a, uh, Pat had a lease in his suit pocket uh, from Mrs. Hutchinson who owned uh, the Pevensey Bay uh, cottage, and I had that in there. But then I thought, mm, do I do I add in? mrs hutchinson at this point a she's not really that relevant b the last thing i want is kind of you thinking mm, hutchinson hutchinson oh because we're already thinking a fair by that point and the last thing i want is another n- woman's name in there so i took that out so these are the kind of things that i, th- I have to think about when i'm kind of writing these episodes is to, uh uh I, I keep everything as accurate as possible but but do you know it's same as t- same as television as well sometimes you've got to. To know he's got to edit stuff out for the for the sake of the narrative. Otherwise, it, you know, if if we told you absolutely everything that happened, you'd just be so bored. You'd be like, "Oh, because think about I'm going to make a cup of tea while I'm waffling." Uh, think about think about your regular day. Do you know, it's not it's not your regular day, my regular day, everyone's regular day. I'm not criticizing your regular day. I'm sure it's fine, but um, you know, our regular days are pretty dull, aren't they? It's like if you were to explain to someone what you do during the day someone will go really that is absolutely dull you know making a cup of tea having a wee uh checking your emails you know it's not really that exciting whereas if you if you recount a story to someone about something that's exciting that's happened to you or something that say the police say oh what did you see on this on this day and you go oh i was at the train station and i saw this and i saw that and it's all interesting but if you were to Say to the police, Do you know, oh, and then I went into the, uh, before that I went into the buffet car and I, oh, uh, there was a bacon and egg sandwich and I was like, oh, I might have that. Or should I, I'm meant to be on a diet. Should I uh, stay on my diet and just, just have a diet coke, even though it's not really good for you. Do you know, it's kind of, life is kind of boring. So, you know, you have to edit stuff out and it's the same with these episodes as well. Uh, so, tea's on. Whew teas on and i've got a a, a chocolate croissant So you know, it's a bit stale i picked it up in lidl yesterday up the lidl and it's a it's a little bit stale but i don't mind i'm gonna have that i'm gonna then i'm, go, I'm gonna wolf that i've had my bacon sandwich Yep, not being sod being uh, veggie today i, I needed some uh, meat meat is murder I, need, I had some of that and then i'm gonna have my uh, chocolate croissant a bit stale but i don't mind and then off to costa coffee to start editing the narration for this Whoa. wedding next weekend so i'm trying to get this done and there's because this, this became a two-parter it was meant to be a one-parter it became a two-parter uh i'll explain why in a bit i hope i do i might forget uh but yeah so uh, i'm trying to power through stuff at the moment so i've got time to do the wedding next weekend and then not be in a bit of a lag uh, so this will be the two-parter and then we'll episode so that'll be 74 and 75 and then 76 will be the final regular murder mile episode and then we'll do six mini miles and then we'll do the six-parter which will take us to the end of the year who's oh dear lord so um uh this was something weird where i knew about this case ages ago uh and I thought, oh, great, you know, the, it, it, you know Waterloo Station's there, and then when I found where uh, Emily lived, which is in WC1, which is fine, it's in the West End. So I thought, great, I can start covering that. Because it doesn't need to be murder locations, it just needs to be locations that are important to the, uh, the story itself. And I kind of knew about this story, not because of the case itself, but because there was a story that went with it. And the story is that... Um, I'm trying not to give too much away because there's a lot that I tell in next week's episode. This this week's episode, I'll be honest, this week's episode is about, it's about perspective. So what I've deliberately done is I've deliberately told you Emily's perspective of the story and I've written it from her perspective and the way she thinks about it and what she's, her hopes and her dreams. And so you kind of get to like her and you think, oh, it's really nice. And then I've kind of added in some of Pat's statement but only his end of the statement. So next week a lot of a lot of these elements will all be explained. There's a lot of things in here that I've deliberately in this episode slightly fudged over. Or there's a lot of things in there that you'll think aren't important but they are important and the things that you think are important aren't important. And it's kind of you know I've deliberately played a very careful game. This has been fun to write but it's been a real nightmare to next week it, hopefully it will all come together. It's quite an interesting case. But I knew about this case from ages ago because there was a story that went with it. And what the story is, I won't give away too much, but when Pat was chopping up Emily's body and trying to dispose of the bits, I've already mentioned in there that he burnt bits in the fire and he put her head in the fire because he hadn't got a pot big, big enough. And even in one of Pat's statements, he does say, he even says to the police later on, he says it's surprising how, what parts of a human body you can actually destroy in a fire. And um, what he did was he put he put the head in the fire um, uh, to burn it because everything else was burning and the head is kind of the hardest part really to get rid of. Um, and he put the head in the fire. As I mentioned, there's big storms outside and things like that. Um, and uh head in the fire, all gets very hot, and uh obviously when all the moisture comes out of the body, the skin starts to shrink. And he was sitting there, the head was in the fire and suddenly uh, Emily's eyes popped open. They started rising open and he could see her, uh, her dismembered head staring at him, looking at him. And apparently he was absolutely terrified. He ran out of the house and went screaming down the beach. Uh, that's, that's what drew me to this story. And I was like, oh, fantastic. I can't wait to find uh, Pat's statements about that because uh, that's kind of injury and I, I was kind of looking into it and you know it is feasible and you know because c- the the shrinking of the skin and things like that or but there's obviously the, a little bit of embellishment in there as well or something like that um but and I, uh, what i realized is it, it, it's not true so i went through the case file the original police file the investigation file and i went through it thoroughly and i was like well there's nothing there there's nothing about this at all he mentions he's, Goes into a lot of details about the dismemberment, which don't worry, we will do. A, we're doing a full part about the dismemberment next week. I, deli- I deliberately fudged over it this week because what I wanted to do was to uh, draw your attention to the things in the house uh, or the things in his statement that match the things in the house. Uh, which allude to the fact that it could have been a an accident. Uh, so I didn't want to go too far with the the whole discussion of, of how he dismembered her because it kind of throws you. The more you learn about him dismembering the bodies, the more I I, I want it. Don't give too much away. I wanted to try and make make you think of it him as kind of do you know a man who accidentally uh, g- girlfriend accidentally gets killed, he panics. He has to dismember the body. He tries to cover it up, uh, rather than you going. Oh, he's a murderer! Oh shit! My computer just switched off. No, it didn't. Oh, hang on. No, you're still recording. I panic then. I panic then. Uh, so yeah. So uh, bodies in the fire, and the eyes pop open, and he sees and he sees her looking at him, her dismembered head. He runs outside screaming. So I looked in the file, and it's not there at all. It's absolutely not there. I went through all the statements. I went through the file thoroughly. And went searching for it. And then I realised it was... Uh, uh, he never actually said that this happened. Uh, it's not in any of the statements. It's actually a construct by the press. The press picked up the fact that he was burning one of the heads. Uh, it's one of the heads. She's only got one head. He was burning the head in the fire. And uh, because it was uh, stormy outside, that's all true. The weather was out. Ab- it was absolutely foul at the time they were there. It was not not a nice time. Uh And uh, it was in one of the newspapers. The other newspaper started sharing the story that the eyes were in there and the eyes popped open. It was all just they just embellished it. But the problem is it's stuck. So it's not in the file, but it has stuck with this story. Uh, And even worse, it's it's uh, there's another story. Uh, I I, I can't remember which one it is. Uh, There's another story about another guy who murdered his uh, mistress and popped her head in the fire. And it popped in that story as well. So I'm currently trying to work out which one it popped in first. Uh yeah. So I uh, so that slightly annoying. I was looking forward to reading his statement about oh the eyes popped open, but it wasn't there. So uh yeah, you can't as I say as I always say, you can't trust anything you read in the papers. Uh so uh Oh, uh just to say I'm already planning all the episodes for uh, next year. That's all ready. So I've uh sat down, I've worked out uh, which ones? I'm going to pull out the National Archives, so I'm looking for. I'm actually looking forward to that. Uh, that's uh, that's the bit I really enjoy the most. Is just sitting in the archives and just reading the files and trying to get a, a sense of what each file is about. So there's some interesting ones, there's some serial killer ones, there's some robberies, there's some terrorism, there's kidnappings. Do you know, I've had a good old look around, and uh, what I've tried to do is, as always. Um, <coughs> work out what goes where and try and make them all different. So yeah, there's some interesting ones next next year. I'm looking forward to that. Uh and there's some other ones which aren't archive files, but I've kind of I've been researching them for like the last year. Do you know every time I find new new articles or things I go, ah oh, that's what I wanted. So uh so yeah, I'm working on that. Uh, if you're wondering uh, where the multi multi part series that I've mentioned about before is uh, do you know? I mentioned it previously. I said that we will always have, we'll always uh, have single episodes, and we'll have multi parts. Then we'll have the special multi multi part, of which uh, many uh, series are all linked together. If you're wondering where it is, you've already listened to most of it. Uh, I just haven't told you that you're listening to it, which is interesting. So um, maybe this will appear in next year. I don't know, but there might be a multi part which will end the multi-multi-part. And then when you listen to that, you'll go oh okay yeah I have already listened to that and then and then it will kind of make you rethink all those multi-part series and the single parters as well that you'll have to go back and re-listen to those and and try and work out um what's going on so that'll be interesting so that's that that's that right where am I now I can't tell you where I am at the moment I'm heading south you can tell it's uh we're getting into winter because it's gone a bit colder some people have started putting on fires already it's still 20 degrees I'd, I'm tight fisted I don't put on my fire till at least December I would rather sit here with big socks on and uh, a hat and freeze to death and really enjoy the heat really enjoy the fire when it's ready but the fires I've had it i've had it ready sitting there for about six months now uh so uh but uh it's weird outside i'm on a bit of a bend uh it's nice quiet area there's some nice fields around me but in front of me in front of me is a sea of green there's a weird algae on the water again and it's covered the whole water and it's nasty stuff it kind of um it uh suffocates all the fish underneath so uh uh, we're trying to dredge away as much of that as possible but it's weird you look outside and you think uh, it looks like you're on like a football pitch it's a really bright green but it's not it's uh, it's uh, really weird <sighs> oh ooh, a little note to myself here i thought i'd point this out um if some of us podcasters seem a little bit grumpy over the next couple of months i thought i'd flag you up about this this is this is really boring but it's 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 important for us uh Many of our podcast network networks have started to uh, standardise the podcasting metrics. See, I told you it was boring. Uh, what that means is um, th- there's never been a really a, a, con- a consistent way of working out um, how... We can work out how many downloads we have. That all makes sense. But uh, because a lot of us kind of make money now from advertising, it's hard for the advertisers to work out... Who actually listens to podcasts for such a period of time? That you know, there isn't really an accurate system. There's no consensus. It's all everyone has their own different systems. So a lot of the networks are starting to use uh, the uh, the IAB's kind of standardized podcasting metrics. So it's a new system that we're moving over to very shortly. Uh, because previously it would be based on downloads. Now it's based on how much of each episode you listen to. Uh, so it's going to be very detailed. So uh we've already been warned about this this won't affect you don't worry it's not a problem but we've already been warned that uh our figures from this point onwards will go down quite a lot we'll probably have a, a bit of a drop because this is a problem and it's, it's not how people use their system fine people are welcome to download in whatever way they want but quite a few people subscribe to a podcast and then download a shit ton of episodes and go yeah yeah i'll listen to that um, and then they listen to like five minutes of one episode and then they go I don't like that and then they delete it and and uh when when you unsubscribe uh all of the unlistened to episodes that you've downloaded that you don't listen to uh they'll get deleted but that basically relates quite in quite a negative way to the adver- to uh, how the advertisers see the show so um it, it's a, it's a little bit complicated but um so uh what that will mean is a lot of our figures will be down our revenue will be down uh uh, it'll take i think it'll take it'll be it'll be great because we'll actually have more accurate figures on how much people actually listen to the podcast too and hopefully uh by making sure that uh do you know because we'll want you to listen to all of the episodes as opposed to just a couple of minutes of it or something like that hopefully this will force podcasters to make better content for you so do you know you'll have a better time and you won't have to do you know you won't be forced to download hundreds of episodes and then delete loads you can just go oh do you know these are really good podcasts and we can uh i'll just have my 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 like me i've got i've got i think i have 30 that I listen to, but probably only probably in about ten religiously. So, uh yeah. But they're all, but it's 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 quality over over quantity, isn't it? So, uh I thought we'd give you a warning about that. Yeah, podcast is maybe a little bit grumpy over the next couple of months. I think it's going to take us a long time to really work out. <sighs> it, it, we'll have to make changes in in uh, how we do things in order to make sure that the content is better and to keep to keep you interested as opposed to waffling on like I'm doing right now. Pugh okay right uh i'm going to be quite careful with this next bit because this is uh the extra bits in this show i've deliberately written this episode quite carefully uh because i didn't want to give too much away there's a lot that's explained in the next episode so i really tread very carefully on here so uh right let's see what we can say Uh, obviously we got the gladstone bag um As I mentioned, that was made of hard ox. You can, can, if you want to have a look, uh, it's on Wikipedia. You can can type in Gladstone bag. There's a picture of a Gladstone bag. It looks like a doctor's bag, really. Uh, Inside, as mentioned, was a brown canvas tennis satchel with the initials EBK. Uh, Emily had her initials on pretty much everything. Inside the bag, police said there was one piece of silk, four and a half yards by one and a half yards. One piece of silk, seven by eleven and a half yards one white bath towel, one 10-inch ten ten inch cook's knife, that's been a pig to pronounce this whole episode, one long blue silk scarf, one torn pair of twill bloomers, all of which were blood-stained. and at the bottom of the bag uh, was a layer of grease slash fat, which was the brownie kind of yellow fat, which had come off, off her um her limbs uh obviously after they'd been boiled he tried to board them off he put them in the bag the the fat is slippy it drips all through the bag so that would have been smelly um inside the bag he'd also covered a lot of it with uh, a substance called sanitas which is kind of a, a a household detergent it's kind of a white do you remember old-style Ajax, the kind of the white powder that you'd shake? It's kind of sanitases like that. So that was found all over the bag. That was to kind of get rid of the smell and to mop it up. Uh, Emily, uh, as mentioned, her parents died. They were both in their 50s around the time. I've done research into this. This was uh, 1902. Uh, uh, from the details that I've got, uh they both died in an accident but nothing more is said about that nothing is in the file at all i've checked census records i've checked news nothing uh but it's it's kind of irrelevant so i'm not really going to go into it uh so she was left with one sister they lived at 21 cranbourne street in Chorlton Cum hardy in manchester manchester i hope they didn't talk like that um Uh, His sister's occupation, uh, sorry, Emily was a typist. Her sister was a shop assistant. She was the slightly older sister, but then she uh, married and moved away. Uh, Emily, as mentioned, quite self-sufficiency. She supported herself for about 20 years. Uh, Came to London October 1922. Seems like a really nice lady. Physically physically and mentally strong. Quiet but decent. Sweet-natured. Rarely in the company of men. She was fond of outdoor sports. Uh, as mentioned, she was relatively tall. She was about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, uh, which was relative. I mean, that was tall for men, even in that era. So it was very tall for women. She was broad-shouldered, uh, loved playing tennis, loved Crown Green Bowls. She was a men- member of the Richmond Bowling Club, which is interesting. Richmond Bowling Club and Tennis Club. Uh, she was actually a uh, secretary of there as well. She, uh, that is right at the end of Pagoda Avenue. Which is where Pat lived. And I've tried to do some it's weird that they met where they met. They met when she was working at the uh uh Robertson and Hill and Co. the the uh chartered accountants. It's weird that they met there when she actually spent a lot of time in a tennis club and a bowling club at the end of his road. But apparently they didn't meet there or maybe do you know or or do you know what maybe later on after they'd met maybe that's where they started meeting each other because it was convenient for him to get there uh and you know or 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 maybe he didn't because maybe his wife went there a lot uh there's more information about his wife in the next episode uh we're gonna we're gonna do all of pat's story um it, it's it's a nice interesting perspective we'll throw a different different light on pat so if you already know part of this story and you're like listening to this going oh, mike's mistold the story no i haven't mistold the story i've just told you i've told you emily's story i've told you from emily's perspective now i'm going to tell you pat's perspective uh because there's nothing worse than just telling people the same old story do you know this is what i do is i take a story and then i try and give you a spin on it i try and tell you a different way otherwise what's the point you might as well just sit down and read wikipedia which most podcasts do uh, well most shit podcasts uh, uh she was well dressed she was presentable stylish she was a very nice girl as mentioned someone had said that she was uh, possibly one of the nicest people you'd ever hope to meet uh broad shoulders light brown hair in a bob Deep set grey bluey eyes, and she had a, a very small parrot like nose. It kind of makes sense. I'll put some pictures online. Uh, I'll have to put them on the social media, on the old social media, because I can't put them on my website because I don't own the rights to them. Uh, she was very clever, she was well dressed, very calm, and not easily riled. Important for next week. Uh, a true romantic, she wanted to be loved forever, but was regarded as a spinster around that time. I hate that word, spinster. It's weird that you got spinster and bachelor. Bachelor sounds great; it sounds like fun-loving and having a great time. And spinster sounds like oh, Weasley and or oh, you know. Uh, uh, Edward died two years, so uh, 1922. So just two years before she died. So actually, the whole f- all that was left was Elizabeth in the end. Charles, her brother, died in Shanghai. I haven't been able to find much details about that. Gertrude died in 1917 uh what else we got what else we got uh she earned a decent wage she had a small inheritance which was well uh it was 600 pounds which was thirty-five thousand pounds today which she wisely invested in stocks and shares she was quite a good forward planner uh lived well but she didn't live extravagantly she did like going out with friends she wasn't kind of uh stuck in the house she loved socializing uh but she she was you know she wasn't the most confident person out there ah what else we got obviously she got a friend fears they were good mates that seemed to go very well everyone said that she's a really nice person she didn't have a a bad temper she didn't have bad things to say you know um uh we got some of pat's statement here let's let's read some of pat's statement hang on how much time we done okay i'll just do a couple of minutes on this uh pat's statement you can hear coot outside he's having a little shout uh during the night the 16th we quarreled we quarreled over certain things i'm not going to do his voice uh because that irish accent wasn't great i mean let's be honest it was a little bit of a kind of a a northern irish ish accent yeah i'm not very not very good at accents but i thought i'd give it a little something uh we quarreled over over certain things and in a violent temper uh, she threw an axe at me it was a coal axe it hit me a glancing blow. I then saw red. We fought and struggled. She was a very big strong girl. She appeared to be quite mad with rage and anger. During our struggle we overturned a chair and her head fell on the, on the iron coal scuttle and it appeared not more or less to stun her. This happened about midnight. I attempted to revive her but found that she was dead. I put her body in the spare room and covered her with a fur coat. I came up to London... Uh, i came up to london on the, mon- on the on the morning of the 17th of april and returned to langley which is basically uh, uh it was called the langley cottages bung- langley bungalows but it was in the area of pevensey bay um uh, that night to uh taking with me a knife which i had brought uh in a shop on victoria street that was the uh, Staines kitchen um shop that i mentioned about earlier on i uh, I also brought in the shop a small saw. That was a butcher's saw. It was basically a a kitchen utensil shop. Uh, When I got back to Langley, I was so upset and worried that I could not carry out my intention to decapitate the body. I did so on Good Friday. So uh, she was killed on the Tuesday, so it was about three days later. I severed the legs from the hips, the head, and left the arms on. I then put various parts in a trunk, which I locked up. I left the trunk, that was her brown trunk. I left the trunk in the bedroom and locked the door. I have been down several times since, wondering how I could dispose of the body. Tuesday the 22nd of April, so this is a week later, I opened the trunk and burnt the head in the grate. I next, oh burpees, I next burnt the feet and the legs in the grate. On the Saturday morning I cut up the trunk, That's uh, he's referred to her trunk, her torso, not the trunk. Uh that's kept throwing me off when I was reading this. I was going, why is he cutting up the trunk? And then it's like, oh the trunk. It's the he's her torso. Uh I I had to cut up the trunk. I also cut off the arms, I burned portions of them. The smell was appalling. I had to think of another method of disposing the portions. I boiled some portions in a large pot in the bungalow. I cut up the portions small, packed them in a brown bag, and threw them out of the train between Waterloo and Richmond. Uh there's another bit here, but do you know what? I'm going to save that bit for next week because that bit's quite interesting. Oh, that's it. That's all I had. Well, 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 well. That was that was fascinating. So, uh, oh, where's my mouse gone? There it is. There we go. There we go. Right, that's that done. Good. Right, I'm going to finish my tea. I'm going to have my my stale croissant. I don't mind stale. Well, sh- still edible i'm gonna go to Costa coffee i'm gonna edit the narration to this try and get it all done i've got a walking tour tomorrow that would be good uh some nice people on there oh who's on my tour tomorrow we have we have duh, 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 duh. we have uh jack clark who's one of, who's one of my uh, patrons uh thank you jack and Dan Huxley as well, who's very kindly ordered a mug and a card. And uh has said, he's very kindly going to bring me some cake as well. So uh, I look forward to that. So it'll be a nice small tour tomorrow, but it'll be a nice one. And then I'll hopefully do some more editing. I'm going to uh, go out and film some videos to go with this. I've got, I'll film you uh, Emily's house, so the Green Cross Club, which weirdly is... I was standing next to it when I was filming the... Uh, so if you look at the video for Vera Crawford, the uh, A Very Ordinary Murder, that is a couple of doors down from, from uh, the Green Cross Club. I didn't know at the time. I knew it was in the area, but I didn't know that's what street it was on. Uh, and then I'll go to Waterloo Station, and even though the left luggage place is entirely... You know, it doesn't exist anymore. It's an entirely... Well, the shell is still there, but the inside is very different. I'll film inside Waterloo Station. And I'll show you where it was uh good that's that done hope you enjoyed that uh and we uh we shall talk soon we won't talk soon because i do the talking and you listen uh it's all good isn't it it's all good anyway goodbye i'm just gonna say goodbye there we go goodbye everyone have yourselves a good day goodbye
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well